Well, this is actually the last week we're going to be in the book of Revelation as we'll be taking a break here for a bit. And it actually covers four chapters, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. So I'm not going to read the scriptures, but I'll refer to the scriptures as we move through the message this morning. You know, maybe you've heard people say something like this. I don't like the God of the Bible. In the Old Testament, he seems so always cruel and angry, full of wrath, instructing Israelites to kill people, even women and children. What kind of God is that? Maybe you've thought a similar thing and have had a hard time understanding relating to the God of the Old Testament seems so angry, and, and, and Jesus in the New Testament always preached and talked about love. What should I believe about God? Which is the real God? You know, up until the 20th century, a common preaching theme in church was the judgment of God. That he'll condemn men and women to hell if they don't follow Jesus. And from the 20th century on, the preaching theme has been more about the love of God that's been manifested through Jesus at the cross. Will the real God please stand up? Have you ever wondered about that? Now, think about where we've been in Revelation. You know, the number seven runs all the way through the book of Revelation. In the Bible, the number seven represents completeness and wholeness. God created the world in seven days. And on the seventh day, he rested because the creation was complete. In the beginning of Revelation, we come across seven churches, representative of every church and every age and every culture until the day of, since the day of Pentecost. And the message to those seven churches is meant to be a message to every church these days, in all ages and all cultures. Last week, we talked about seven seals. You know, in chapters 4 and 5, we see God holding a scroll in heaven. And those seven, with seven seals on it, which highlight all that has happened in the world throughout human history. And that picture in heaven tells us that only Jesus could open the seals because only Jesus fully obeyed God. He sacrificed his life on the cross as the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of sins. They point out the real presence of evil that dominates human history. That the world really hates the church. At the same time, God is sovereign and will always be faithful to those who followed Jesus. And today we come to the seven trumpets that announce the completion and the fullness of God's judgment on the world and the people who rejected God, rejected Jesus and his intentions for our lives. This will be again highlighted in Revelation chapter 16, where later in Revelation it talks about the seven bowls of wrath. The wrath of God is about God's judgment upon evil in this world. So here are the words from the beginning, from Revelations chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. It begins to unfold all of this. When the Lamb, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer 
filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So what Revelation is telling us, when Jesus opened that last seal, there was a dramatic pause in heaven that was marked by a completely stunned silence. Something dramatic was about to happen. Have you ever been so surprised or shocked by something that you don't know what to say? Well, that's kind of what we see in heaven. That's what's happening there. There are seven trumpets that were going to announce what God was going to be doing. And what brought that about? These verses tell us God was responding to the prayers of the saints. The prayers of his people that have been crying out for justice all through human history. We see that in the Old Testament and the Psalms all the way through. We pointed out last week that God's people have been crying out for justice since the beginning of time. And now we're being told that God is going to answer those prayers. And it's going to judge all the evil in the world. He's going to bring about his justice. And that is the wrath of God. Judging evil and bringing justice to everyone who has ever lived. You know, it's, this is what Jesus told us himself in the Gospels, that that is what will happen when he returns to earth at a second coming. And the, and the reference in, in Revelation to rumblings, flashing, lightnings, and earthquake reflects what happened when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God passed by. There was thundering and lightning. It is the presence of God revealing himself in this world in all his glory. Now, the truth is, we all want justice. You know, we're created in the image of God. God is a just God and a holy God. So it's natural for us to want justice. You know, I said this before, when someone hurts us or our loved ones and takes something from us, we want justice. And that is perfectly appropriate. But on the flip side, when we do something wrong or hurt someone, we don't want justice. What do we want? We want mercy. And that's just a reflection of, of human nature. And we're being told in Revelation 8 that the time for God's judgment and justice has come. No more delays. No more excuses will be accepted. God's justice right and true because he sees the heart. Scripture tells us he doesn't judge by outward appearance as people do. His justice is right and true. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, if you think about that verse, that verse is not just in future tense, but it is in present tense. God's wrath and justice is not just something that will happen when Jesus returns, but has been occurring all through human history in different ways. And we'll explain that in a moment. And what that verse is saying is when we ignore God's truth, when we ignore his laws, we're subject to his justice as the creator and ruler of this world, the one who laid down the laws by how we are to live. Just like if we ignore the laws of our land, we're subject to human justice. Now, we know human injustice is very imperfect, but God's justice is right and complete. It is perfect. And these four chapters speak to us about the wrath of God. First thing we want to understand is God's wrath is just because every human being is without 
excuse. You know, God has gone to extraordinary lengths to help us discover who he is and what he's done for us and that everyone is genuinely loved by him. But people at some point have to acknowledge that. They have to take ownership of their wrongdoing and failure to honor God as God. And, and God in Scripture really has revealed himself in three major ways. The first way is God reveals himself through creation. Paul writes in Romans, again, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they were without excuse. Now think about this. Look at the organ behind me. You know, would you, would you ever think that it, that organ came about because a bunch of wood and a bunch of metal was thrown into this big mixing machine and out came the organ? No, we wouldn't. We would say there had to be a designer, someone who built it. Now, it's clear that it was designed and built by someone. If one looks at the beauty of creation, understands how it was designed to meet our needs, and recognize the very fine-tuning necessary for it all to work together, it doesn't make sense to say that it happened at a chance, but there was a creator behind it who designed it, however he brought it into being. Anything else, in many ways, is illogical. But to admit it, that means there is a God who we should be paying attention to. And people don't want to admit that. Secondly, God reveals himself through our conscience. You know, we all have an internal sense of what is right and wrong. And even if we don't recognize God's law or never been exposed to God's law, none of us even live up to our own standards. Paul writes, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We may never have heard of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, or Jesus, but none of us even live up to our own understanding of what is right and wrong. We violate our own conscience. We're created in God's image, so we all have a sense of his justice as a part of who we are about the right way to live. You know, an interesting thing is all through history, when people haven't ever seen the Bible or heard about Jesus. It's happening today all the time in Muslim countries where people have never had the Bible, never heard a thing about Jesus, and yet they're searching for the truth. And what happened? God's appears to them in visions and dreams. It's happening today very much all the time. In years past, you know, in Africa, when the mission movement first sprang out, there are a number of different stories that are well documented where missionaries visited a tribe that had never heard of God or Bible or Jesus, and they come and say, we've been waiting for someone to come to us the truth about God. You see, everybody can know there is a God, and God is always faithful to reveal himself to those people who seek that truth. The third way, God reveals himself through the scriptures and through the living word of Jesus. You know, the scriptures of the word of God shows us how God revealed himself through human history and how he's revealed himself through Jesus, the living word, as John, des John describes him in chapter 1 of his gospel. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only son, is very close to the Father. And he has shown us what God is like. 
And Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus came from God, the ultimate demonstration that God only wants to bring us life to us. So everyone is without excuse before God. The second thing we need to recognize about the wrath of God, it's, and I've said this before, it's not just an end time event, but it's being experienced in life right now, even though we may not recognize it or see that. You know, the Bible talks about reaping what you sow. The wrong things we do in this life often have bad consequences that we may experience in the here and now. Paul writes in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And what that's saying is sin has consequences. You know, Paul in Romans 1 tells us that God allows people who want to rebel against him to go their own way because he respects us as people. We have free choice. They, they can do what they want and to experience the consequences of their choices right now. Three times in that chapter, Paul writes that God gave them up or let them go their own way, letting them experience the consequences of their decision to ignore God and doing their own thing. Furthermore, Genesis 3 tells us that death is the ultimate expression of the wrath of God. Adam and Eve, disobedience brought about the most complete example of the wrath of God, physical death. That's a very present physical reality for all of us. Death is our ultimate enemy, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and its impact will not be undone until Jesus returns. You see, Jesus' resurrection is kind of the visible demonstration, the down payment and proof that one day God will even defeat death. That's what the seven trumpets are all about. They're announcing God's wrath on the sin and evil in the world. It's happening in history right now, but it will intensify in the days and years just before Jesus' return. When we read these judgments, they are written in symbolic language, just like most of Revelation. So it's hard to know exactly what it will look like, except that we have to understand that God's judgment will have widespread impact. You know, many of these judgments that are expressed have been seen in Scripture before, like in the plagues on Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let Israelites go free. Similar descriptions are found elsewhere in Scripture. When the created world is disrupted, it is a judgment on people because God created the world and it was designed by God to support life. The severity of the judgment is seen in the first four trumpets when it says, one-third of the world will be impacted. God's wrath is going to be widespread. Now, I'm not going to read all of those scriptures. I'm just going to give you a sampling of a couple of the trumpets. And I would encourage you to go home and read Revelations 8, 9, 10, and 11. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned. All the green grass was burned. Then the third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter. And many people died from drinking the bitter water. 
you see the, the severity of what's happening here, the intensity of God's judgment as it leads up to Jesus' coming. And with the sound of each trumpet, the judgment of God becomes more and more severe. After the first four trumpets, which are all about the disruption and chaos in the physical world and the impact it has on human beings, John Vigit highlights the justice of God as it falls on the human race. And he writes in verse 13 of chapter 8, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The three trumpets left have three profound and severe judgments from God that are coming. He calls them the three woes. Well, the fifth trumpet announces that God opens the bottomless pit, hell, allowing Satan and his minions to afflict people in the world. In, these, in the succeeding verses, he's called, Satan is called the destroyer. He seeks to destroy. And so, but even here, we see the protection of God for his followers. He also sets limits on the evil that Satan can do and inflict. Revelation keeps telling us that God is in control. Listen, they were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, God's limiting what they can do to his people. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain, like the pain of a scorpion sting. The punishment it's for the people who refuse to follow God and Jesus. And here Satan is a destroyer. He's evil. He doesn't care who he hurts, even those who don't follow Jesus. And at the same time, God is using him, but he's limiting Satan and he, what can do on his own. Followers, for a very clear reason, we'll see shortly. He is still showing his love and mercy that we will soon see how that can be in the face of all this pain and suffering. That first trumpet is the first woe. The second trumpet is about war and the destruction it brings to men and women everywhere. It's been happening now and all through human history, but in the days prior to Jesus' return, it's going to grow even more serious in the days leading up. The war. People die. The judgment of God. And then in chapter 10, we get a little reprieve. And Revelation tells us, and, and, it, it, and in many ways, this chapter tells us how this vision should affect us. How would you feel if you received such a vision from God about all this death and destruction? It would wear us down. I don't know about you. It, 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 it would be, there would be an awful sense to it. And it would emotionally devastate us. So God makes a special point of confirming this message to John. And we get the picture of an angel bringing a little scroll, which represents the words of God's judgment here, and asks John to eat the scroll, to take these words into his heart symbolically. God is confirming to John that these words come from him. You know, a similar thing happened in the Old Testament with Elijah, because he also spoke about God's judgment to Israel for their disobedience. And so the angel tells John and us, he says this, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. 
Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. And so what the angel is doing is reassuring to hear God's word and to know that it, what it is and it will be true. But the destruction and suffering that is described here will be very sad to see and experience. To see so many people in the world and the people we know suffer so severely because they refuse to follow God and Jesus should be devastating to us. It should literally make us sick to our stomach, so to speak. And that's, that's what he describes to John. And that points to us the purpose of God's wrath. God's wrath is a warning for people to turn to God before it is too late. God's wrath is a warning for people to turn to God before it's too late. It's important that we understand that. Yes, God's wrath we see unveiled in these verses is punishment for the evil caused when people reject God and his will. But there's a much deeper purpose behind that. It's a continued demonstration of his love and mercy for all peoples, even for those who have rejected God and Jesus up to their point in their lives. You see, he longs for them to discover his love and forgiveness before it's too late. For when Jesus comes, the hour of judgment will be upon them, and the opportunity to change and repent will be gone. And so at the conclusion of the sixth trumpet, we're told the reason for God's wrath. It's described here in Revelation 9. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refuse to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. Revelation is telling us that God's wrath described here prior to Jesus' return in actuality is about his discipline. You know, I want, to think, want you to think about what does it mean to be a good parent? Think about this for a minute. A parent wants to what? Love their children and primarily they want to bless them with all the best things in life. They want to love them, to know that they're valued, and to bless them with a good and healthy life. But real love is not just about giving their children all the best things. It's also about discipline and helping their children to understand what is the right and healthy way to live and the consequences of selfish and wrong behavior. A parent's love cannot be complete unless it also involves discipline. Punishment is that is meant to help the child learn what it means to live in a right and healthy way in this world. A parent who does not discipline their child does not really love their child completely. Theirs is a very flawed love. And as parents, we're all flawed. <laughs> we all make mistakes. You know, I can think back on life and understand that I made many mistakes as a parent. Most of you, even if you have never been a parent, can look back on your lives and realize that your own parents made mistakes in these areas too. We're never perfect. But God's love and discipline is always perfect, right, and just. So chapter 11 demonstrates this truth even more completely about how God's wrath is really a discipline seeking to point people to him that they would call upon him and experience his love, not his judgment. This chapter is one of the more difficult chapters to understand in Revelation. It's talking about the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation we find back in Daniel's 9. And we're to describe it as a seven-year period of great destruction and chaos before Jesus returns. 
the world is experiencing the wrath of God. It's the birth pangs prior to Jesus' final return and his judgment. So for the first three and a half years, Revelation talks about two witnesses that God will raise up to proclaim the truth for one last time. Revelation describes them this way. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They have the kind of power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often they wish. So these are two prophets proclaiming God's word and witnesses much like Moses and Elijah were in the Old Testament. Moses declared to Pharaoh to honor God and to let his people go. And when he announced God's judgments in the plagues, one of the plagues was the Nile turning to blood. Elijah boldly preached to King Ahab and the ten northern tribes of Israel who had rejected the true worship of God. And what did he do? He prophesied and saw that there did not rain for three and a half years on earth. So these two witnesses are God's final appeal to the people of the world to repent and to turn back to God. God desperately wants everyone to experience his love and not face his judgment. But he knows that most will not turn back to him, but still he persists in trying right up until the very last moment. The sixth trumpet in the two witnesses is the second woe. Then Revelation tells us that these two witnesses are killed after three and a half years. And it says that the world will rejoice over their death. Why? <laughs> because they hated them, that they were reminding them that they were living the wrong way. And that they had rejected God. They're rejecting God's final witness. So Peter explains what Revelation is saying in these chapters this way in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, talking about Jesus' return, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so what Revelation is telling us is God is giving everyone an opportunity to turn to him right up until the final moments before Jesus' return. God's wrath and discipline in human history in these final years is meant to lead people to repentance in order to experience God's love and forgiveness. His wrath has the same purpose of his love to draw people back to him. Paul writes in Romans 2, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness, his love, is intended to turn you back from your sin? And so what Paul is telling us in Revelation, God's wrath and God's love has the exact same purpose. To draw people back to God so that they can lead a blessed and healthy life in this world and for all eternity. It's just like a parent's love. It's real if it will include both blessing and discipline because they want their children to live a healthy and whole life. So we need to see and understand God's wrath in the full context of Scripture, that its purpose is to point people to God and the right way of living. It's his discipline, his warning. And then at the end of chapter 11, the 
the eleventh trumpet sounds, and this is the third woe. And it's the announcement that Jesus is returning. The day of Christ's return is now at hand. Listen to these scriptures. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The time of Jesus' return has come. The opportunity to repent and to turn back to God is gone. If you've rejected Jesus, there is no more opportunity to turn back. God has bent over backwards to give people the opportunity to draw them back to him, and they've rejected his offer. The time for judgment is now. Now think about the Lord's Prayer. We pray in the Lord's Prayer each week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what Revelation is telling us now that Jesus is coming back and God's will is going to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. He will have complete control and reign in this world. And so basically the last 12 chapters of Revelation are simply an explanation of what we just explained. <laughs> in I just read in Revelation 11, Jesus is coming back. And those last chapters give us an overview of, of some of what that looks like. We need to make one more observation about how God's wrath speaks to us today if we're truly going to understand it. So fourth and finally, God's wrath has two profound implications for how we live as Jesus' followers today. You know, as followers of Jesus, we should know and think about this, that Jesus has borne the wrath of God we deserve at the cross. Now, we're still far from perfect, but God's not going to zap us when we do wrong because he promises to forgive us for all the wrong we do. You know, those little electric lights you put outside in the summer that zaps the flies. That's not how God is going to treat us. When we have placed our faith in Jesus, he bore our wrath. We don't ever have to worry about being zapped by God. John states the same thing in a positive way. In John 3.16, when, when we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not die, should not perish, but will experience, but because he gave up his only son. We know that verse. We'll find everlasting life in this life starting now and for eternity. That is why in many ways we can rejoice for Doris. Even though there, there's grief and pain on this side on earth, she's no more pain. She's in the presence of the Lord. She's not hobbled, dancing and rejoicing. And when Jesus returns, her body will be resurrected and restored to what God intended. Do you understand how that should change our perspective on life? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are valued. And no matter how many times we blow it, we come back, he continues to forgive. He loves us. We're secure in his arms. That should be just a, a guiding principle in our lives that just determines how we look at life. And then it has one other implication for us when we consider the future of those who don't know Jesus. 
Judgment is coming, and it's unavoidable, even if we don't experience it fully in this life. Jesus is coming, and all who lived or died without turning to God and Jesus will be judged. We are all created in God's image, all called to live according to his laws, but none of us can fully meet his standards. No one can love God perfectly and love their neighbor perfectly as themselves. We all fall short. Therefore, every person who has ever lived needs Jesus to satisfy God's wrath for them. There are no exceptions, period. Think about all the people you know, family members, neighbors, coworkers, many others, that make no attempt to know God or follow Jesus. They are all facing the wrath of God. Our heart should break for them. We should be praying for them. And the reason the church exists is to tell others about Jesus to appeal to them to know the love of God, to avoid the wrath and final judgment of God, which is unavoidable by anyone. The church is God's mission agency. The church doesn't exist just to make us happy and make us feel good. If we think the church is just about us and what we want, we don't understand the gospel. The church exists to encourage us in our faith, to prepare us to be his witnesses in the world, in order to point people to Jesus. That's why the church exists, to point people to Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, when we read these chapters in Revelation, it's scary. There's so many emotions that come out of it. I think a father of, of all through scriptures, how your people called out for justice. Why do the wicked prosper? And so on and so on. We see that all the way through. And we thank you, Father, that you are both a loving and just God, that you're a loving God, that you delayed your judgment to give everyone an opportunity to respond. We thank you that you're a just God, that ultimately everyone will face justice for how they live their lives. And we thank you that your justice is right, pure and true. You know the truth about all of us. Thank you for that. And Father, we are just so grateful as we think about this all through Revelation, just how faithful you are to those who call upon you, that you'll be with them, that you'll hold on to them, that you'll never let us go. And I pray, Father, for each of us here that you would just embed in us just how much Jesus did for us at the cross, that we were spared your wrath, and that we don't have to live in fear, but we can live in confidence and assurance of your love and grace and mercy that we're valued, that you want to use us for your glory and honor, and that you have a purpose, a very big purpose for each of our lives. Thank you so much for that. And then, Father, too, we think about people around us, people we know. And I pray, Father, that you'll just Lay it upon our hearts and my heart that we might pray regularly and daily for those folks that they would come to know Jesus, that God by his spirit would break into their lives, that they would know the same truth that has been the bedrock foundation of our lives. Thank you for all that you've done. We know that you're a mighty God, a good God, a loving God, a just God, a faithful God. We just praise your name.
Jesus' name we pray. His name we pray.